Welcome to In Conversation with Our Food Future, a podcast that's following the creation of a circular food economy in Guelph, Wellington, Canada. I'm Barb Schwarzenberger, former executive director of the Our Food Future initiative and host of this series. In this month's edition, I sit down with Philip Loring, a human ecologist and storyteller, working with communities for over 15 years to build food systems that are sustainable, equitable, and just. His new book, Finding Our Niche, Toward a Restorative Human Ecology, won multiple awards for nonfiction and environmental writing. So welcome, Phil. It's, uh, I've been wanting to have this conversation for a long time, so I'm, I'm really thrilled to have you here today to talk about a whole range of things. And one of the first that I want to talk about, you're just back from COP15, the Biodiversity Summit, and I, I'd love to hear your sort of off-the-cuff comments about that in relation to the agri-food system. Yeah, absolutely, and, and thanks for... Thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it. This, it's a good chance to chat, uh, get to know each other a little bit better, and and um, and it's a great topic. And yeah, I just got back from Montreal um, a couple of days ago, but just now um, the UN has announced that we have a new global framework, a global biodiversity fam- framework out of COP15, and and that's quite the accomplishment. You know the. The original Rio summit in 1992 that set the Convention on Biological Diversity has been, <clears throat> excuse me, has been the, the the guiding frame for biodiversity con- conservation for 30 years, and the world has changed a lot. Yeah. And the it's called the new Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework sets a lot of ambitious goals for for protecting and preserving 30% of the world's biodiversity by 2030, and also acknowledges the role of our food system, including reducing food waste by 50% in that period of time, which would be remarkable. And I think it's the first time we've seen such explicit incorporation of our food systems and how our food systems can be a source of solutions in these large global level biodiversity conversations. Yeah, and and uh, I I happened to I got the chance to go to COP twenty seven this year, and it was one of the first times that there was like a food system day, and it was, you know, starting to become part of the agenda. What do you? Why do you think it's taken so long for people to recognize uh, the role that transforming the food system can play in terms of biodiversity and climate change? Mm-hmm. I, I think I have two thoughts about that because there have been people who have been saying we should take a food systems perspective for a long time. But I think that it's taken a while to really come to terms with how significant the impacts in our food systems are. Our food systems for a lot of people for many years have been very opaque, mm. right? It's just mm-hmm. food at the store. And the conversation around the the challenges and changes facing our food systems always oriented around production and mm-hmm. hunger. And there hasn't been a lot of transparency and knowledge and understanding of the significant social and ecological impacts of the ways that many of us produce food. Uh, and it's only been in the last few years that we've really come to understand how much food is wasted. Yep. Right? 
And I think the fact that so much, 40%, whatever the latest numbers are of our food is wasted um, and all the water that's in it is wasted mm-hmm. and all the, the climate change emissions that come from that are going right into the ground. I think that's shocked people and really mobilized people around realizing that our food systems can be the center of solutions as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, But we have to come to terms with a willingness to recognize that they ought to change first before we're willing to talk about transforming them radically, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, you got to understand what the problems are. And and I think you're right. It's it really I don't think it's just because I've been working in this space, but it really feels like in the last couple of years. And I think a little bit because of the pandemic as well, people start to see the fragility of the supply chain and are asking questions and inflation. And it's just put a focus on on something we've taken for granted for so long. I think you're right. Um, in your book, which I love, Finding Our Niche, Thank you. earlier this year, um, thanks, for, thanks for writing that. It takes a very different perspective on um, restore, restorative human ecology. And you, you argue for, you know, I want to sort of dig into the transition that's required. You argue, I think, for place-based, small, but holistic changes as a way to find mm-hmm. the right path uh, around transitioning. And some people would argue, well, you know what? I, I'm not sure we have the time for that. We have to move quicker and faster and bigger, and we have to figure out how technology can help us. And um, and I, I I know that you recognize that argument, but I think you take a bit of a different position. So I'd love to talk to you about that. Yeah, abs- thank you for that question. It's one that I get a lot, and I understand because we face enormous challenges on a very short time frame. Um, and it's easy um, to look at small things that people might change um, and think they're insufficient, right? Um, but the thing about small change, slow change, is that it's only slow until it isn't, mm-hmm. right? And this is the concept of tipping points, is that the way change works, whether it's evolution in nature or revolutions in society, change builds slowly from within, only until things coalesce, hit a tipping point, or converge in certain spaces do you see the rapid, rapid outburst um, of change where one thing comes to take over something else. And when it comes to social change, it can be very difficult to, to know how close you are to a tipping point. Mm. Right? It's If you think about Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the hill, you know you can never tell how close you are to the top of that hill because you're behind the boulder. And the closer you get, the harder it starts to feel because you're tired and the, you know, it's it's small steps each way until all of a sudden you're at the top and that boulder is rolling or that snowball is rolling down the other side of the hill on its own. And and so, like I said, slow change is only slow until it's not. But slow change is what we can control. Slow mm-hmm. change is small change is what we can where we can really put our values. Right. The other side is to accept this what I call sort of the imperialism of of the imperialism of crisis, that that there is no time and therefore we have to accept whatever solutions are being given to us and that we Mm -hmm. can't have an active role. Um, There's no time for that. We have to implement this particular technology um, or or what have you. And so uh, I think that there's a lot to learn when you look at how systems change from how, how little things add up and multiply over time in ways that we can't expect. You know, the, if, if we know that it's a, our food systems are complex 
then we know that the things we do aren't just going to be additive. It's not like playing pool on a pool table. They're going to interact in curious ways, and there's going to be emergent mm -hmm. outcomes that nobody sees coming. You know, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah, definitely. And uh, and truth be told, that's been the lesson of my experience in this uh, the Smart Cities and Food Future Project is it's been a lot of little things. And suddenly when we took stock of them, we realized we were you know, we were active in over 60 projects throughout our region, not all led by ourselves, but led by a whole number of, of community uh, groups and, and agencies and leaders and, and residents. And, uh, you know, now when we put them all together in, in the third year of the project, it feels like we're getting closer and closer to the top of that hill or to that tipping mm -hmm. point. And so I, I totally, I totally uh, agree with what you're saying. Um, but do you think that small uh, place-based uh, actions have to be replicated across sort of nationally, right? Because people talk about mm -hmm. you can do the place-based stuff and that's really important. And I want to talk in a minute about how, why that's so important, uh, the place part of why it's important. Um, but like, how do you scale place-based mm -hmm. small stuff across across a nation like Canada. Yeah, well, one of the challenges, and this is, again, something that people ask all the time, is how do these solutions that work in this particular locale, how do these sort of small-scale examples that I give in the book, Finding Our Niche, can they scale to other parts of the world that are very different? And my my answer is always to to say that I think we need to shift our language a little bit when we think about how change how solutions work across a landscape. You know, the language of scaling is language we get from an industrial way of seeing the world, right? And living systems don't work quite in the same way. Living systems change not by scaling. They don't scale per se, but they do evolve and they diffuse and they disperse and they speciate, right? I think we need a whole new set yeah. of vocabulary for thinking about how solutions in one place can be deployed somewhere else. And so that living language, how does this innovation, how do we help it diffuse across the landscape? And then each place where it's encountered, each group, each community, each culture that encounters it, how does that new niche, how does that idea, that innovations change, adapt, speciate into this part of the world and that part of the world? Um, the living language for me, I think is, uh, where we need to move the conversation because what we've been doing is scaling. Yeah, we have really great ability to scale production systems. If that's we, our food systems today are unprecedented in the amount of food they produce, more per capita per person than arguably ever before in the history of humanity on this planet. Uh, that comes with great costs, as we've mentioned or implied. Um, but scaling has never been efficiency through scaling has never been the challenge, right? And so. Um, I understand the argument that we need to figure out what will these solutions look like and can we deploy solutions like this or in this category across all of Canada or across all of the global north. Um, but we have to go into those, reckon with those solutions with a slightly adjusted understanding of what it's going to look like from place to place. Yeah, definitely. And you know what? I write scale multiple times a week in my role and I'm always looking, it, it never feels right to me. I'm always looking for a different word. I've tried spread, I've tried other things. Mm -hmm. So 
I'm looking forward to you producing that new lexicon of <laughs> for for and that we can socialize with uh, with uh, government and private sector funders because we really are stuck in in a production industrial uh, way of looking at at uh, at innovation really right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah um, so talk to me a little bit about. Um, culture and ecological systems as keystones. Can you, can you say a little bit more? Cause anytime you talk about place and, um, and creating change, you come up against or could work with culture. Can you say more mm-hmm. about that? Yeah. So in the book, I talk about the notion of keystones in a couple of different ways, right? I, I talk about how, individual species through enacting their livelihood strategies, beavers or wolves or humans, can change things in a way that is important for ourselves, for the species themselves, and also the the structure and the function of the rest of the ecosystem. And ideally, that happens in very sort of mutually beneficial ways, right? The just, you know, the the analogy obviously is, is to the arch, in, um, you know, the keystone in the middle of, of an architectural arch. And, and if you pull out the keystone, right, the rest of the, the stones fall. The arch cannot hold. But the, the funny thing about the keystone analogy is that it works in the other direction as well. If you don't have the other stones, the keystone is not going to stand up there at the top. And so there's this mutual interdependence in the notion of keystones. Now, when we talk about culture, you know, culture is sort of a snapshot in time, an impracticed snapshot in time of a lot of learning over a lot of years for how to make a living, for how to live yeah. well, right? And so when you talk about the role of culture, say, in solving problems, I think it's important. It, on the one hand, it's easy to see culture if you see it as something being static and hard to change. It seems like a barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, in the history of humanity, culture has been a living, learning thing. And in the, in, if you look at historical example, it's when, it's when our culture becomes too rigid and too unwilling to learn um, that we face um, problems. And so, so my thought is to look at the, the more diverse landscape of cultures you have before you that you have the opportunity to be a part of, the more great ideas and lots of great experience that you have around you, should you need to be resilient? Should something change? Should there be some catastrophe or some surprise? And so that's where the diversity of cultures brings capacity to change, but you have to have that value for change. And I think that's one of the biggest sticking points we face right now is that we have to relearn in our dominant Western culture, we have to relearn this flexibility and this willingness to be a part of the earth's global learning system as things change. You know, we've spent so much time in this this small envelope of climate called the Holocene, and we're not going to be there for much longer. We need to learn as that change happens, right? That's so true. And and I, I really, I take your point about, we talk about culture as if it's a barrier to change. You know, that, that famous saying, culture eats strategy for breakfast. I get that quoted <laughs> all the time. And 
And it's meant to say, oh, we, you know, we could do this if only it wasn't for this culture that we got to, you know, this massive culture that we have to change. And I like your way of thinking about, you know, the more that we can be inclusive and learn about different cultures makes us more resilient and able to able to change and adapt. I, I really love that. I I. Also, I'm really quite interested in your book. You talk about um, an Indigenous philosopher that shared with you the idea that sustainability was about healing people and relationships. What do you think we have to do? You know, how do you, how do you think we need to incorporate that into our our work and our thinking in the sustainability and uh, and transition work? Yeah, I think. I've been really encouraged to see more and more people using this emphasis on healing, emphasis on relationships. You know, one of the one of the biggest sort of traps I think we've fallen into in terms of our own worldview and and seeing the problems and and then thinking about their solutions is that we're we're very material oriented around them. How many, you know, how much greenhouse gas, how much food production, you know, the outputs, the material issues. And so our solutions always sort of focus on just that particular aspect, the objects in the system. Um, This objectification, if you will, of all of the challenges we face when when we all exist in relationship with with one another and and the the significant difference that i i still try to learn and incorporate into the way that i see the world and it's hard um when you didn't grow up as an indigenous person you don't have sort of inherent access to that different way of seeing the world but is to see to, to to see everything as a collection of relationships first you know that you and i are in relationship right now in this conversation and this conversation is very contextual and it happens now and it's not me talking it's not you talking it's us talking to other to each other in this one particular setting um and 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 that's a thing right the relationships are the thing and if we focus on being in good relations with other people with the soil with the animals in our food systems and and then and recognize that relationships go both ways then Mm -hmm. we can from those relationships then think about what the, the outcomes sort of as emergent properties, you know, and, and if we're in good relationship and we want to be in good relationships with each other and with the land and with the water, then we're going to have to be op- open ourselves up to learning mm-hmm. because you can't deny the material outcomes, the negative material outcomes, whether it's nitrification or eutrophication or climate change. Um, but if the work is to solve that by being in a better relationship, Right. Uh, what that looks like, I think we're still trying to figure that out. Um, you know, so much of our science is built around studying things, not relationships. Yeah. Even social science has has worked more has worked a lot on organization and how the world is organized, but still has a lot of sort of materialist sort of trappings about material culture and the things that are the culture and not the ways of making things that are the culture. Uh, I think this is a a shift in thought that for people who are from a Western cultural background that is just, just starting and you're seeing it in science and you're seeing it in reports on food systems. And um, I think it's early days to figure out what, how we're going to, how we're going to change that way of thinking into solutions, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I, 
I definitely agree with you. And we're, we're, there's a lot of baby steps and there's a lot of missteps. And I, I don't think we entirely, we're learning and it's, it's a little bit of a painful process. Where do you stand on this issue of saying, uh, you know, we, it's, it's our job to save the planet and the, the, um, whether or not the human species are we talking about saving the human species or are we talking about saving the planet? Right. Like well, you know, uh, uh, and the author, an author who I was really um, influenced by, Daniel Quinn, wrote in multiple places that um, it's not the earth that needs saving. The earth is going to be just fine. It's yep. it's us. Um, the the downside to that, that quip from him is that if we go down and smoke, so do a lot of other things in our, is collateral damage, right. Um, on the planet. And I, I feel like we have a responsibility to try to do better with all of our relations and to, at the same time, abandon this notion that we're going to save everything, right. There's a lot of a, there's a bit of a savior complex, a white savior complex embedded in the notion of saving the world. And I think that's an, a notion that scales out in a way um, to the point where you have people looking for silver bullet solutions that will work everywhere, which goes back to your earlier question. And so mm-hmm. I do think we have a, a ethical and moral imperative to try to reverse the courses we've set the planet on biodiversity loss and so forth to do better with respect to one another and ethical and social issues but i think the way we get there isn't to try to do it for people but to create the enabling conditions that allow people to solve their problems on their own terms and that's such a critical aspect for food systems for example as opposed to try to feed the world make create the conditions where people can feed themselves yeah, and that's a perfect segue into the one topic in you know the last few minutes. I wanted to make sure that we covered it. People talk about a just transition, and in particular, what does that look like for farmers and producers? And mm-hmm. uh, how do we? It goes to what you're talking about. How do we create the enabling conditions so that farmers and producers are at the center of this transition and are supported to uh, you know undertake their role in relation to the overall. Um, system change. So, where, where do you where do you land on that one? I think my sense is that we we ha- don't just have one but two major change periods of change ahead of us. The first is if you'll accept the metaphor where we're pulling the plan out of the tailspin. Mm-hmm. Right, we have to do whatever we can as fast as we can to to keep the worst possible impacts from happening. And we need to do that in a way that minimizes, if we want to do that in a just way, we have to do that in a way that minimizes harm for yeah. as many people as possible. You know, you know, farmers, small-scale farmers, peasant farmers are already at the center of these transitions, right? You know, through groups like Levia Campesina and the Alliance for Food Sovereignty in Africa. But the solutions we talk about, I think it's really interesting because, because, a lot of the narratives around new solutions we see for transforming our food systems are pinned to the problems we face today. And a question I often want to ask is, why should the food systems of our future be designed around the pathologies or the problems of the present? Right? Mm. Let's solve the problems we have and create enough space for people to aspire to the food futures they want. Right now, people can't even envision the yeah. food futures that we want that would be just 
and equitable and secure and regenerative and healing, right? Because we're already on this sort of razor's edge of needing to act, needing to act. So, so on the one hand, we need to make sure harm is minimized in the short term and make sure that we're not closing, foreclosing on better futures in the actions we take now to minimize harm, but instead creating those con conditions for people as we do get start to pull out of out of these interlinked crises um, to to think big and to think different and to think about futures in ways that we just can't even think about right now because we're so constrained in our imaginations by the enormity of the problems around us. Well, that's that's probably the quintessential point to end on. The, 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 how do you? I I like to think a lot about the crisis of imagination and and how you support people to have the space to do that. I hadn't thought about we're so stuck in our current pathologies that we we don't have any space in our mind to really move forward. I thank you so much, Phil. That was a really inspiring conversation. Oh, it was a pleasure. It was a great chat. I, I really enjoyed this. So thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thank you. That was Philip Loring, Errol Chair in Food Policy and Society at the University of Guelph. He is also the host of The Second Transition, which explores opportunities for radical change in all aspects of our lives and society. Let's have a listen to Snack Bites. Snack Bites makes juicy circular economy topics even more digestible. Guest host River Kamen joins soil scientist Jordan Grigg to explore how healing our relationship to soil is connected to an imperative for restoring our food system. Hello, and welcome to this segment of Snack Bites. My name is River Kamen, and I will be the guest host for this episode. I'm a graduate from the University of Guelph with a degree in organic agriculture and currently walking alongside the Indigenous Food Sovereignty Collective here in Guelph as a settler on Anishinaabe land. With our topic today about soil science and biodiversity, I would like to acknowledge our responsibility in being stewards to the land and ensuring that in the quest for building a circular economy, we're mindful to set intentions to befriend and rekindle loving relationships with the soil. And with that, I'd like to welcome our guest, soil scientist Jordan Gregg, who works for the County of Wellington as the Sustainability Program Coordinator for our Food Future podcast. Welcome, Jordan. Hi, thank you so much for the introduction and having me on. Yeah, of course. Uh, so I think we'll jump right in and uh, we'll start with, can you give us a definition for soil health? Yeah. So the way I like to define soil health uh, is as the ability for a soil to keep doing what we rely on it for. Uh, so most obviously we rely on soil to produce food for us, but uh, it also has a, many other ecosystem goods and services that um, we rely on it for that we might not think about on a day-to-day -day basis. So um, soil also impact or has a has to do with flood management, uh, drinking water quality, carbon sequestration. Uh, and it's also a wonderful habitat for a multitude of insects and fungi, bacteria, and all those little creepy crawlies that live inside of it. Awesome. Okay. Could you tell us about why soil health is so important? Yeah. So we rely on soil for so many different things in our everyday lives. Uh, you probably can't 
go a full day without interacting with something that once started in the soil, whether it's your wooden furniture, uh, you're using a pencil that's made out of wood, you uh, put on a pair of jeans that are made from cotton, which is a crop that's uh, started in soil. So uh, our lives are so intricately connected to soil, um, but it is a non-renewable resource. Uh, so it takes about four to 500 years to form a new centimeter, a couple centimeters of topsoil, and we are losing it at a much faster pace. So uh, the interest in soil health and ensuring that uh, our soils can keep doing what we need them to do, we are protecting what we have instead of waiting uh, and having to regenerate more soil. I really like how you touched on the, the interconnectedness that we have with the soil, that you know, there isn't much that we can do within a day where we're not interacting with soil in some kind of way, even if we're not directly, you know, on the land, touching the soil with our hands, right? And how precious it is to, um, you know, take care of our soils because it takes so long to regenerate and to have really healthy soil. So going off of that, what would it take to classify soil as healthy yeah, so I think you're going to get a lot of different answers to that question, depending on who you ask. Um, sometimes we can talk about soil health in the terms of lab tests. Uh, so if you send some soil off to the laboratory, you'll get a whole bunch of numbers back and you'll see how much phosphorus is in your soil or what your organic matter percentage is. Um, but a lot of that has to do with the type of soil. So it's going to be very uh, variable across uh, the whole world, across our country, even across fields, you can have variety in soil. Uh, so I don't think that's the best way to define what a healthy soil is. Um, and something, or the way I like to look at it, is a healthy soil is one that can stay on the field. The storm that comes through your soil isn't being blown away, it's staying uh, exactly where you want it. Or if there's a big rainstorm, it's not running off into creeks that are uh, adjacent to your field, it's staying exactly where you want it. Yeah, I think that... That's something that really needs to be thought about more in the way that if we're creating a circular food economy, there's not many places in nature where you're going to see bare soil, right? So like in mimicking or really observing nature and taking notes from that to how can we protect the soil and keep it covered um, and make sure that it stays healthy while we you know, produce food for ourselves. What kind of practices promote qualities that ensure for a healthy soil? Yeah, so I think we have to look at these practices that can promote um, soil health as a toolbox rather than sort of a prescription. Uh, so every farm you go to, you're going to find different practices that are going to be um, impacting the soil health. So some of the uh, more popular ones in Southern Ontario that are perhaps a little bit more geared towards uh, grain and oil seed crops, so like our wheat, our corn, soy. Some of the big ones are reducing tillage, so going to no-till or conservation till. Uh, so tillage just sort of acts like a really large rake that digs into the soil and uh, mixes it up. And it uh, isn't so great for the soil because it... Uh, breaks up those pathways that allow water to infiltrate into the soil um, so that uh, doesn't keep your soil where it is. If you have a big rainfall, it gets washed off. By swapping that practice out for something like no-till or strip-till, you're only tilling where you need to because it does create a nicer seed bed to plant into, so you're going to get uh, a little bit better um, 
uh, a better prop standing, usually, depending on where you are. Uh, but that's just one of the things that you could do. Uh, cover crops are another popular one that are uh, happening in southern Ontario, uh, where after your main crop that you grow in a year, uh, you plant a second crop that isn't intended to be harvested. So you're growing it just to help repair the soil, to keep your nutrients in place, to keep your soil covered over the winter. Uh, and then if that dies over the winter, you can plant again in the spring. Uh, and this is uh, kind of a neat one because we're starting to see it in uh, like fruit and vegetable farms as well. So um, adapting something that was created for a very large scale and uh, doing it on a much smaller scale is something that's uh, been kind of neat to watch happen over the past few years. Um, another thing that can promote soil health is having a good crop rotation. And I think this is also where biodiversity comes into it a little bit more. So if you grow the same crop every year, you're going to be depleting the soil of certain nutrients as well as uh, inviting unwanted pests and diseases into your farm. Uh, so by growing something different every year of different uh, plant families, you're able to kind of break up those cycles. Um, and this one is, uh, I would say, probably the, the easiest one or the one that most people are implementing uh, by you know, switching out corn to soy to wheat and uh, rotating through that. Uh, but soil health can also be impacted on the animal uh, or livestock side of things. Uh, and rotational grazing is something that we've seen. Uh, we have a nice little pocket of that happening in the county uh, over in Erin, um, where instead of just giving uh, cows, say, the whole pasture, you rotate them through many smaller paddocks in the pasture and it helps uh, a lot more with carbon sequestration and getting some of those nutrients for manure back into the soil. Uh, so it can look different on every farm and it does matter the climate of where your farm is. So if you're up in Northern Ontario, you're going to have very different practices that are going to impact soil health than those in Southern Ontario, or that might work in the United States. It all has to do with climate and the soil type that you have and what you're growing. So kind of going off of what you were saying before about how there's not a one size fits all for developing healthy soil or having healthy practices, the uniqueness of soil and the importance really of knowing the soil um, and knowing what it needs. Like you're not copying what another farmer is doing, right? You're, you know, your if you know your soil more intimately, um, that could change, uh, what kind of practices you have or what you may change doing from year to year. So thinking of um, building a circular food economy and people's relationships with food, how do our relationships with soil shape our relationships to food? Yeah, that's a, a really interesting perspective to take. Um, and I do, I agree that I think the more we the more we know about our food, our food system, where our food comes from, the more uh, we can make informed decisions. But I think um, we can also see it as an opportunity to build community, um, especially between our uh, urban centers and our more the more rural land that surrounds it. Um, so I was born and raised in a city, so I uh, was very disconnected from the rural environment until I started learning about soil. Uh, and that's when I was able to start to make connections with farmers and understand sort of that um, the actual practice that goes into growing food. And it's uh, not as easy as sort of throwing some seeds down and waiting uh, a couple months and then we have food. Um, 
So learning about soil for me, that was uh, one of the bigger things that helped connect me to the food system was actually understanding sort of all of that behind the scenes work that starts um, that starts with the soil. And I think um, when you're learning about soil and learning about the food systems and agriculture, knowing the people that are doing it um, is a huge step. So um, when you're able to make connections around you and you kind of break out of either your, your rural bubble and learn more about the urban or you break out of the urban bubble and learn about the rural landscape surrounding you, uh, you're one step closer to your food and local food is a very impactful way to uh, participate in the circular economy. Yeah, that's, that's, that's beautiful. And um, I wanted to touch on... Um, what you think about how the development of a circular food economy could help to grow soil health and biodiversity in turn. Yeah, so I think the that soil health and soil itself can kind of be a connecting piece in our circular economy. Uh, so when we can look at soil and then more broadly um, agriculture uh, in a few ways through sort of the circular food economy lens, uh, and one way is trying to mimic the, the circular nature of nature um, and how uh, nature sort of regenerates itself. And we're trying to mimic that with uh, agriculture. Uh, sometimes we can call it regenerative agriculture, sustainable agriculture. They all uh, are groups of similar practices and similar outcomes. Um, so when we care for our soil health, we're helping it uh, work in that sort of cyclical nature of we grow things and then that feeds our soil and then we grow things and that feeds our soil. And we're uh, trying to sort of uh, minimize the external um, inputs that we need to uh, create, have that system moving. Um, but we can also see soil uh, as a connecting piece in like the larger food uh, system as I like to think of it as sort of the uh, connecting piece. Eventually you might have byproduct or waste that can't be designed out of the system at that time if you need to compost it and then it gets added right back into the soil and then we can start that cycle of uh, regrowing food again. So I see it as a connecting piece, but also as a, as a circle. So what are local farmers doing to protect biodiversity in the Guelph Wellington County? Yeah. So we have a lot of farmers in Wellington County, and it is absolutely wonderful that we get to work with them through the Our Food Future project with Experimental Acres. Um, and I've been learning a lot in the past year or so about all of the things that the farmers are doing to protect biodiversity and to improve soil health. Um, we have so many innovative farmers who uh, know that they want to do what's best for their land. They know their land so well. Um, and they have these, these wonderful ideas that they get to bring to us. And uh, we can say, yeah, let's, let's try it out. Um, so they're really great stewards for their lands. Um, we have one farmer who's trying out a fully winter crop rotation right now. So he grows, um, he plants uh, winter, uh, canola in the fall, and then it kind of almost hibernates all winter and starts growing again in the spring. So it's sort of taking advantage of um, the times of the year when we have the most water in our soil, uh, which is sort of a flipped script from uh, traditional agriculture. And he's trying to implement that in uh, like a four-year crop rotation, which is really neat and uh, 
it, it extends the amount of time that we have our soil covered. So it keeps our soil in the field where we want it. Um, but we also have farmers who are doing rotational grazing and um, it's been really neat to see little groups spring up uh, in the county where they invite others to come and talk about it at their farms so that there's farmer to farmer learning about it. They can say, hey, how often are you rotating your uh, cattle through your pasture? And uh, it's been really wonderful to get to sort of watch those things naturally pop up. And we actually have um, a group of farmers and also just uh, excited citizens in Erin who've created a group all about soil and finding common ground through soil. It's called Common Ground. And they uh, meet and they are, are using the principles of rebuilding soil and rebuilding community as well. Uh, and it's it's just so great to see those, uh, those groups popping up and people taking an interest in it. So we have uh, a lot of very vibrant agriculture in the county and I've just been uh, so happy to be along for the ride with all of them. Yeah, that's so awesome to hear about the communities that are gathering above soil to to help the communities that are below the soil. <laughs> um, so could you tell us about what you see happening next in the way of building healthy soils and creating better relationships with soil? Yeah, I think there. this is one of the most exciting times to be looking at soil health. There's a lot of um, interest coming from different levels of government and a lot of support for farmers to be able to um, try out these new soil practices on their farms or these new uh, agricultural practices on their fields. Um, because sometimes when you do um, apply these new practices, say you go no-till for the first time, uh, you can see a yield lag. And so you are making a little bit less income. So there's about five years of that. And then you start to see the, the dramatic uh, increase in yield and everything after that, or it at least levels out to what it was before. Um, so we're seeing a lot of support um, building uh, to help farmers through that little yield lag uh, so that they're doing something that's best for the environment, but it also economically makes sense for them, uh, which uh, we're also happy to support with the county with our programs that we run. Um, but I think there's a lot of really neat little trends popping up in soil health, um, especially when we're looking sort of at uh, smaller farms. So we're seeing cover crops and market gardens where you uh, maybe would have just had a bare garden for the winter before. Um, and the other cool thing is integrating animals back into the rotation. So um when we are able to bring animals on to graze a crop, then they uh, kindly provide nutrients in the form of manure back to our land and that can get um, stamped back in. So we're able to reduce our um, reliance on external inputs like fertilizers um, a little bit. When we kind of bring animals back in, we kind of create like a little nice little circle. Um, and then sort of on the, the high tech end of things, um, precision agriculture is something that I think is just fascinating, um, where you can look based on soil type, based on uh, your past yield, um, and find areas of your field where you can either change the amount of fertilizer you're putting down, the seeding rate that you have, um, so that you're still uh, maximizing your, your profitability of the farm rather than maximizing your yield, because sometimes adding that additional fertilizer isn't boosting your yield anymore. So taking a look at that uh, data layer 
and making decisions that way has been, or it seems to be a, a trend that's popping up that I'm uh, excited to see happen because then we can also know more about our soils, which I think is uh, always a good thing. Yeah, that's awesome to hear about. Um, in the Indigenous Food Sovereignty Group now, it's like very different way of thinking and um, a lot more feeling about and like building relationships. It's like there's there's kind of these this two-sided view that I have. Like I, I understand the economical and the agricultural side, but I also am learning to see soil as its own entity with its own uh, autonomy and just like so much more than agricultural gain or like what's the maximum amount we can get out of this soil and rather like how can we build a relationship where you know it's not just in our lifetime that we'll see oh this much profit or how efficient we can do this like like, will this soil be healthy and, like, happy in generations to come? And are we treating the soil with respect and really listening? Yeah, I think that'll, that'll be a big turning point if that kind of knowledge gets integrated. Like, really having Indigenous-led everything. I don't even want to just say agriculture, just, like, stewardship, really, in the way that... Um, with climate change and global warming that we'll really need to make drastic changes in the way that we view and interact with everything around us, including the soil, which is like so abundant in all that it has to share and not even just like things that we can take and use or eat or wear, but just like sharing knowledge and being present with the land. I think it is important to acknowledge that none of the practices that we're talking about are new. Um, these are practices that um, stewards of our land have been doing for thousands of years that we are um, now trying to relearn. And it's important to follow the, the lead of our Indigenous leaders in the area. And thank you so much for uh, having me on the podcast and talking about soil, something I don't get to do super often. So yeah, we love to talk. <laughs> it's a joy for both of us so thank you for coming thank you I'm Barb Schwarzenberger thanks for joining me today if you have ideas for a show or comments you can send us an email at foodfutureatguelph.ca until next time and let's keep the conversation going on foodfuture.ca